I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Evan Keeley, and we're talking all about the life and music of Fanny Mendelssohn. There is a lot to discover in this wrongly neglected artist and composer. We discuss her life, challenges, the sexism she faced from an early age, and her influence as we sample a variety of her music. There is a lot we know and a lot we don't know actually about Fanny Mendelssohn, which is a product of the time she lived, the following century, the suppression of her and other women's music. And it wasn't until 2010 when musicologist Angela Mace Christian discovered that Felix Mendelssohn's Easter Sonata was actually written by his older sister Fanny, and that's what we're hearing now. And it wasn't even until the last 30, 40 years that serious research has gone into her music. So that's to say, after 150 years starting the research at this time, a lot of material, a lot of information is probably lost. But that is to say, we still know a good amount about her life and her music. So Evan, tell us a little bit about her early life, her upbringing. The Mendelssohns are a fascinating family of very accomplished people. Uh, One thing to mention is that they are, of course, a a Jewish family going back generations, and uh, anti-Semitism is a reality in the world into which Fanny is born in Germany in 1805. Her grandfather, Moses Mendelssohn, was actually a prominent philosopher, and one of the things he wrote about as a philosopher was the importance of tolerance. And he was very outspoken about that. His son, Abraham, Fanny's father, Fanny's and Felix's father, and Abraham's wife, Leah, converted to Lutheranism. And then Fanny and Felix were baptized in childhood. So there's a lot of questions with the Mendelssohn family in general and with Fanny in particular about identity, a religious identity, an ethnic identity. She has a Jewish heritage, but she's Lutheran, so there's this kind of this both-and quality about her, and you really find that in her relationships, and you even find it in her music. She actually wrote a choral setting of one of her grandfather's writings. It's this sort of this religious uh, reflection, Ob Deine Wunderszeichen Staunen. It's a work for uh, piano and solo soprano and chorus. So she's clearly proud of her heritage, uh, and yet she inhabits these sort of these multiple worlds at once. Uh, so that was a reality that she and her family had to live with. Uh, anti-Semitism, of course, the, the monstrosities that we see in Germany in the 20th century didn't come from nowhere. But there's also a lot of tolerance in the 19th century as well. Uh, I think the Mendelssohns are a very relational family. I think they're a family that uh, it's very important to them to be connected. You go. This goes back generations, like their Moses Mendelssohn, the philosopher, trying to bridge gaps between people, and Fanny and Felix's father uh, having this uh, this tradition of concerts in the home, and Fanny's maternal aunts were very involved in organizing that. Fanny was very involved in that. They really want to be connected to people. They want to have relationships with other creative people, and there are these barriers that exist for her as someone who's a, a woman in a bourgeois household that's a very wealthy, prominent family, but they also have this Jewish heritage. There's a lot of complexities that she had to navigate. I think she actually navigated them with a lot of sophistication and thoughtfulness. I think so too, especially as you're describing all that. It really puts, it paints a picture as to just the quick bullet points we see about composers' lives and how really there's so much more involved and looking at Fanny Mendelssohn coming from this wealthy, upper-class family, well-to-do, strong instruction when it comes to 
religion, languages, I assume. Yes. Also, of course, music being a heavy thing. In 1805, in November, when Fanny Mendelssohn is born, and she's four years older than her brother, I saw already from a very early age her prowess at the piano was pretty well recognized. Her teacher, piano teacher, wrote in a letter to Goethe, of all people. Mm -hmm. He said, and this in regards to the Mendelssohn family, he has adorable children, and his oldest daughter could give you something of Sebastian Bach. This child is really something special. They must be special if you're writing this in a letter to someone like Goethe. Yes, and uh, she was actually, uh, when she was, I think, 15 years old, uh, for her father's birthday, she gave a, a house concert, one of these private performances that we were talking about. And she played the, uh, I don't know, we're not sure exactly what she played. It was uh, maybe book one of the Well-Tempered Clavier from memory. Yes. So she was a very skilled pianist, a very sensitive musician, and one of the things that's interesting to me about that is you really see the influence of J.S. Bach as you look at her music. She's certainly writing very much in the romantic tradition of the early 19th century, but she's already, from a very young age, steeped in this Baroque tradition, and that's one of the voices that informs her musical identity. I can imagine if you are uh, this young teenager, and you've already memorized book one, for instance, of um, J.S. Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier. I mean, that is that is quite a feat. Um, yeah. I can play the first prelude um, <laughs> if you give me 20 minutes to practice it again, but that's about it. It's also this early teenage time we see that she has her first compositions. She was 13 or 14 in 1819. The first one, I think, she ever wrote, that's lost. But she has a song from that same year that has survived, if I can pronounce it somewhat correctly, Ertuna schwingt euch freulich. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Here's a small selection of that. Now, I don't know a lot about art song. We studied it in school, and I did some Schubert leader on my instrument, which is, which is a nice creative exercise. But I don't know that much. But every song I've listened to by Fanny Mendelssohn has been great. And yeah. she wrote hundreds. And she wrote hundreds, and she wrote them through her whole life. The German lead is one of the cornerstones of her creative life. She writes a lot of these short pieces, short solo piano pieces. The German lead is very important. Even in the piano trio, Opus 11, the third movement, rather than writing a scherzo or a minuet, which you might find in a three, a four-movement piece of that period, she calls it lead, and it's actually like a, a duet from a zingspiel. The violin and the cello are the heroine and the hero, and the piano is the orchestra. And there's that German lead tradition of this, uh, this kind of clarity. You see this, you mentioned Schubert before. I don't know the extent to which his works were that well-known in a place like Berlin where she was living in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. But um, certainly that tradition is really growing. This is the era of Karl Maria von Weber really creating a new sort of German identity in opera. And I'm sure the Mendelssohns were well aware of that. But Fanny really has this gift of creating this incredible clarity. And I don't want to use the word simplicity because her writing is very sophisticated, but it's simultaneously very accessible. And you see this throughout her works. You certainly see it in the leader. You see it in a lot of these short piano pieces that she wrote. I'm thinking in particular, the uh, she wrote a number of these uh, things that she calls uh, Lieder für das Pianoforte, which is interesting to me, songs for the pianoforte. 
It's a similar genre to what her brother wrote, which we know as the Songs Without Words, but she doesn't call hers that. And these are actually some of the few works that she published. We'll talk more about her publishing career. But there's the Opus 2, number 2 in particular. There's this very rich sort of orchestral texture to it, and yet the writing is very sparse. You even look at the score. It's not a busy page of lots of notes. It's just very simple. It looks very simple, but it's deceptive in the, the complexity that she's able to convey in a way that's very immediate. So these, uh, these simple vocal lines and these German leader that she writes and other works uh, really speak directly in a way that's, that's very compelling and powerful. But she also has this incredible lyricism and this gift for melody that's, that's really extraordinarily compelling. I think a lot of what you're explaining, it makes sense through the lens of what you said before, how she's steeped in the music and... Um knowledge of Johann Sebastian Bach, when you think of Bach's music, oftentimes it's the bare minimum of notes that he could use. He takes away all the unnecessary notes. And with her in these songs, they have this approachable or sometimes simplistic line to them. For me, that's what makes it even harder. Yeah. When you have fewer choices to make musically, those choices you make are even more impactful. And it's very easy to write a song. These sound easy because she wrote them so well. It's very easy to write a bad song. Yes. She has an extraordinary economy with which she's able to express herself. Uh, like I said, there's no set of extra notes. Everything is exactly where it should be. There's a sense of the Mendelssohn family. I don't want to use the word conservative, but you look at the musical scene in the first half of the 19th century in a place like Germany or a city like Vienna or a place like Paris. You have these varying sort of rival trends in European music in the first half of the 19th century. And the Mendelssohn voice, the Mendelssohn family, I think, represents what we would think of as a less daring, less wild kind of a compositional aesthetic, as opposed to a composer like Franz Liszt or uh, Frederick Chopin, or certainly getting even more into the almost experimental music for the time of Richard Wagner. The Mendelssohns, I think, are more grounded in this uh, this tradition of, we talked about J.S. Bach, the German lead tradition, which is almost has like a folk-like quality. So this very economical style of composition is a, is a real hallmark of her style. And it's about this time in 1820 where we see the first of many examples of what she would have to be, what was what she was against. And that was she's now 14 or 15, and her father writes her saying, music will perhaps become his, meaning Felix's, profession, her brother, while for you it can and must be only an ornament. I mean, you're telling someone that she's only 14, maybe 15 if it's the end of the year. She's already hearing this, and she's for sure probably heard this before. Indeed. And uh, she navigates this her whole life. It's very difficult to ascertain what's going on in her inner world. What, what are her thoughts about this? It's easy for us in the 21st century to assume that she was just this this oppressed woman. I don't think that's untrue, but I think that that's, uh, there's, there's a lot of layers of complexity to her story and the extent to which she was able to speak in an authentic voice despite the limitations placed on her as a bourgeois woman from a wealthy family, as a person with a, with a Jewish heritage in a, a place where anti-Semitism is, is certainly a factor as someone with a quote-unquote, you know, more famous brother. She has to contend with all that, and I don't know the extent to which she was able to live her truth, because I wonder if uh, she lived exactly as she wanted to. 
There's plenty of examples of her being a very assertive individual. There's a, she was very involved in her brother's musical life. Mm-hmm. He turned to her frequently as a composer. You could argue that she was more influential on him as a composer than vice versa, although there's a yeah. lot of stylistic similarities. You mentioned the Easter Sonata before, which was originally believed to be his, and musicologists determined it was hers. So there's a stylistic similarity, to be sure, and yet they each have a distinctive voice. There's a story about a rehearsal she's attending of one of her brother's pieces, and the conductor got the tempo wrong. Yeah. He's playing the tempo at like half the speed it's supposed to be, and she stands up and starts yelling at him, no, no, the tempo should be twice as fast. So she's not a shrinking violet. She's not afraid to assert herself. And yet she's told by her father, as you're saying, uh, in, in adolescence, you're, you're never going to be what you're—you don't have the opportunities that your brother does. You have to live a different way. And the extent to which she uh, takes that in and the extent to which she accommodates her own needs around that is, is actually very difficult for B to ascertain. She's a complex figure. We can only gather from what we have at this current moment in terms of um, what we have from, from letters— Felix wrote around the same time, just after this, saying, from my knowledge of Fanny, I should say that she has neither inclination nor vocation for authorship. And this is referring to publishing. She is too much all that a woman ought to be for this. She regulates her house and neither thinks of the public nor of the musical world, nor even of music at all until her first duties are fulfilled. Publishing would only disturb her in these. And I cannot say that I approve of it. Now, of course, Felix Mendelssohn is very young at this time as well. He's still, you know, four years younger than her yes. and a teenager. And you see this playing out in other composers at this time period as well, women that are writing, where they're writing chamber music, art song, mm-hmm. piano, very small chamber music. But publishing, that's work. Yes. That is now outside the home. She would be earning her own money. And that also goes to with, we can talk a little bit later, with orchestras. If you're writing music for an orchestra, that's different than writing something for a small concert in your home. Yes. You're now in charge. You're, there's all those things that um, involved with that. And publishing was one of these things that, at least in this instance, was not looked well upon for her. There is another early work, one she wrote around the times of these letters, and it's a work for the piano, a set of piano pieces, these Klavierstücke. That's already quite lovely for, you know, someone at this age writing music like this. But when you compare this to a more mature work that she wrote nearly 20 years later for the piano, I mean, you can hear quite a difference. As she gets older with her writing, things become fuller in in an almost orchestral sense. There's more textures and more parts, more moving parts and intricacies, I think, in the music, but quite already impressive when you're a teenager writing that kind of music that we heard initially. Now, where would her music have been played? We've already mentioned slightly these Sunday concerts, and these were more than just playing together with a family 
on a Sunday evening, right? This was this was a quite an event. This was quite an event, uh, and it involved uh, some of the uh, the cream of uh, Berlin society. It was an invitation only kind of a thing for the most part. So you're not talking about you know maybe uh, three or four people just gathering together in somebody's sitting room and, and playing a piano. You're talking about a concert, but it isn't a public event. It's people that the Mendelssohns know, people that they trust, people they've invited. A lot of very creative people from that time and place are participating in these events. There's a lot of pieces. Uh, both Felix and Fanny get a lot of their works performed for the first time in these venues. And in some cases, this is the only venue in which either of them had those compositions performed. And very often with the intention that it was this was just for our inner circle. You see a lot more of that with Fanny's compositions and with Felix's uh, for the kinds of reasons that we've talked about. You mentioned earlier how she was assertive in, in, in these different examples. There's a quote from around this time that I think was also in conjunction with a Sunday concert. That is one of my favorite quotes from a composer. She's 17 when she writes this. That means her brother, Felix, is 13. She said, Up to the present moment, I possess Felix's unbounded confidence. I have watched the progress of his talent step by step and may say I have contributed to his development. I have always been his only musical advisor, and he never writes down a thought before submitting it to my judgment. Now, I don't have a sister, but I can just imagine this 17-year-old Fanny with this 13-year-old little tiny Felix standing next to her. <laughs> he doesn't even write down a thought unless yeah. it goes through me first. She knows her worth. Yes. She knows her ability from an early age, and she is not at all ashamed to show it. And uh, she and Felix are close through their whole lives. They rely upon one another. He definitely relies upon her. You quoted that letter that he wrote to their mother earlier about he's he's really not enthusiastic about the idea of her publishing. Mm -hmm. But obviously, he has tremendous respect for her as a musician and as a composer. And they're very close. There's a lot of love. There's some rivalry, maybe. That's kind of this legend that's grown up around the Mendelssohn family. The extent to which that was actually the case is very difficult to ascertain, but certainly they were both very talented and they both cared about each other a great deal. So, and you even see that in his relationship with her in terms of her publishing, and you know, you're quoting the letter where he says, uh, I'm not in favor of her doing it, but you know, uh, as she gets uh, later on in life, well, we can talk about that a little bit later, he has a different approach. Yes. And this statement, he doesn't write down a thought without my judgment. It's true in a slightly absolute sense in that for the rest of their lives, he, as you said, musically was dependent on her. He followed her advice pretty closely. When yes. he would send her scores, she would send back remarks, edits, whatever. And he followed them and trusted her when he would not be there for a rehearsal, that she knew exactly how things would be needed to go. Yes. One of the things that when you talk about Fanny Mendelssohn, you know, you have a famous person in the family you know, quote unquote, more famous. And we want to say, well, she's not just somebody's sister. And that's certainly true. But at the same time, you can't really understand either of these composers without thinking about their family. Yeah. And you can't understand Fanny or Felix Mendelssohn as composers without thinking about their relationship with one another. So if you want to understand Felix Mendelssohn as a composer, you need to be thinking about what his relationship was with his sister. Yes. And vice versa. Yes. We'll get into her marriage right after this. Classical Breakdown is made possible by WETA Classical. Listen to the music anytime, day or night at wetaclassical.org or on the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. 
so now Fanny Mendelssohn is going into her 20s and in her family and of in the public side, I assume, it is time for her to get married, mm-hmm. take care of the home, have children, put this work or as someone would describe it for her, this hobby of music, put this aside. It's time to get married and, and do all of these things. Yes. And she meets the man she uh, falls in love with and marries. Uh, there's clear indication that they were very attached to one another that it wasn't a marriage of convenience or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an artist. She's 16 when they meet. They get married, I want to say, f- I don't remember the exact date, uh, maybe five or six years later. I think it was 1829. Yeah. So uh, she's, uh, you know, she meets him as a teenager. Uh, not unusual for someone that age to be thinking about getting married, and yet she, for reasons that aren't clear to me, puts it off for some years. They do get married. They have, seem to have a very happy marriage. He's an artist. It's actually a memorable couple of sketches and, and drawings and paintings he makes of her, which are really lovely. Uh, so he was possessed of real talent. They have one child who survives, and she has two. We're not sure if they were stillbirths or miscarriages. Mm-hmm. So a lot of suffering uh, in her life, to be sure, but also this very loving marriage, this very loving family. And it's quite remarkable looking at how her family and others were discouraging publishing her husband, this artist, William Hensel, or Wilhelm Hensel, actually supports her writing music, which the rest of her family did support her writing the music, but he also supported publishing the music, yes. right? That's That seemed like a big deal. He wants her to publish. You know, maybe a fellow artist, a fellow creative person, uh, we're not sure exactly why. Maybe he, as her husband, was able to uh, see beyond the uh, the strictures of uh, the, the what her family had placed upon her in, in a way that biological relatives had a harder time doing. Uh, but it's it's a it's clearly a creative partnership in more ways than one between the two of them. Absolutely, and it's around this time, sort of, we think that we have basically her only orchestral work, this overture in C major, which. I'll be honest with you, I listened to it. I really like it. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's really finely crafted piece. And to be a little more honest, I don't listen to Felix Mendelssohn all that much. I don't want to say, <laughs> I don't quite get it. You know, it wasn't someone I studied a lot. It's someone's music I never have to perform. And when I'm listening to her, listening to this overture, it's almost, it's it's maddening that it's like, we need more of this. Yes. I want more of this. This yes. is This is fantastic. So this was around, they think, 1830. It's one of those things that we just don't know now when she wrote this in her life. But it's only one. For sure, she wrote something before this to, you know, in preparation or studies of writing for a larger ensemble. Yes. But it's one of those things that she was not able to do. I don't think it was even performed, of course. Probably not. And I wonder if it's the first movement of a symphony. Mm. That she, because you know, it's this basic first movement symphonic sonata form. There's no indication of that. That's just my wild guess that that's one possibility. And maybe she wrote that one movement and then said, you know, I'm going to move on to other things. And maybe the impossibility, the unlikelihood of it being performed may have been one of the reasons why she didn't write more orchestral music. And we see that happening to other composers like Louise Farrank, who wrote some fantastic symphonies. Yes. And kind of you know, put those aside and then went on to write chamber music, which she was more um, welcome to or accepted. And um, yeah, even she, I mean, she had to fight tooth and nail for decades to even get paid correctly. Yes. So this is a a wide felt issue. Louise Farrank, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned her. uh, Very close contemporary. I think they're maybe a year apart, she and Fanny. 
Uh, Louise Frank born in 1804, if I remember correctly. And uh, shameless plug, there was a fascinating episode of Classical Breakdown about Louise Ferranc not too long ago. I think it was you and Nicole Lacroix talking about this fascinating composer. Very different life in a way. She's Parisian. Uh, she teaches at the Paris Conservatory. Really a lifelong struggle for her to be recognized along her male, uh, as an equal of her male peers. And we don't see quite as much of that same kind of struggle in Fanny's life in a conspicuous way. Mm-hmm. And that's a really fascinating mystery to me as to why. Is, is it because that's not what she wanted, or is it because she felt like she couldn't have those things? I'm talking about Fanny. We really don't know. Yeah. One of those things that information, data, whatever, lost a time. And with that, music lost as well with um, with not having these orchestral works. Now, you know, when she's turning 30, we're already into her later life, which, you know, spoiler alert, you know, she doesn't live a long time. She doesn't die very young, but 30, she's already well into um, the last um, decade and a half of her life. Yes. And this is another one of those things that you read it and it doesn't quite make sense at first. Fanny was this well-respected pianist, performed in these Sunday concerts. Her public debut did not come until 1838. She's 32 or so. Mm-hmm. And when she and for that debut, she played her brother's piano concerto number one. So making that debut um, a bit late. But she also wrote some other works that are quite nice. She has a string quartet from 1834. It's her most mature string quartet and maybe one of the first surviving ones we have written by a woman as well. Yes. This is a quartet that Felix did not like. Um, he was a bit critical of it, and then she never wrote another one. A few years later, in 1841, she writes one of her most well-known works now, Das Jahr, The Year. It's um, quite fun. I like these kinds of things where there's 12 characteristic pieces um, and an epilogue. It's following the months of the year. There's um, lines of text. Literature quotes are included as well. And what is just so nice is that, and I'll put a picture on the show notes page, of the manuscript Mm -hmm. because her husband drew stuff in, right? Yes. One of the things that's interesting about Dasyar is a lot of Fanny's music is what we would call absolute music, music that doesn't have any kind of a program. It's not telling a story. It's not painting a picture. You just have these these leader, these songs for piano. The song, as far as we know as the listener, isn't about anything. It's just uh, notes on a page. But Dasyar, there really is a program. There's, there's this sort of literary and uh, visual artistic aspect to it. And uh, you don't find a lot of that in, uh, in her other works. And we're hearing a little selection from June of this piece. And the text from this one, by Goethe, from his Faust. Uh, do I hear rustlings? Do I hear songs? Do I hear the sweet lament of love? I mean, it's also a little humble brag for her, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Goethe knows about me. <laughs> he knows I'm one of the greats. He's only one of the greatest literary minds of our generation. And yeah, sure. Yeah, he, he and I are buddies. Yeah, when I have time for him. After this work, Dossier, it's about five, six years into 1847 where she has her final big work, and that is her piano trio, which is just absolutely beautiful. I love this piano trio. It's a masterpiece. really one of the great works of the genre. It needs to be played and heard more than it has been so far. Yes. And this is one of those examples of later in her life when she's writing, it's more, I don't want to say grand, it's it's richer, there's more 
to this. It's more orchestral in its writing. It's not A and B, but it's A.1 through infinity to B kind of thing. There's everything in between <laughs> that you can um, that you can find in here. I, I completely um, agree, John. And as I was saying before, the third movement is a lead, uh, a German song. Mm-hmm. And there's a deceptive simplicity about it. When you hear it, you think, oh, this is like this little sort of folk tune. Or And as you look into it and listen to it more carefully, there's, a, there's just an enormous sophistication and complexity there uh, underneath the 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 surface of what seems like just a very a very beautiful and very appealing kind of music and just the year before this in 1846 that's when she sees her first published work so she published this work and her brother wrote saying i send you my professional blessing on becoming a member of the craft may you have much happiness and giving pleasure to others may you taste only the sweets and none of the bitterness of authorship may the public pelt you with roses and never sand <laughs> so he he had discouraged her he hadn't been enthusiastic about the idea of her publishing once she does it uh he's obviously very supportive and uh, there's a couple of stories we could tell about that. One is that when Felix was invited to visit uh, Queen Victoria in London, mm-hmm. uh, she asks him to play, uh, you know, they're talking about his music, and she says, oh, I want to hear my favorite of your songs, uh, the, a song Italienne. And he has to confess that this is one of the works that his sister wrote, which was published under his name. And uh, he actually admits to it. He could have lied and said, yes, that's one of my best songs. Thank you, Your Majesty. Uh, But he admits he gives his sister credit for that work. There were a couple of instances where her music would be published in his name. There's some that we know about, like the Opus 8 that has three songs that are are hers. Surely there must be some others lingering out there as well that maybe we don't even know. She wrote to a friend when her works were first published, and she says, I can truthfully say that I let it happen more than made it happen. And if the publishers want more from me, it should act as a stimulus to achieve. If the matter comes to an end, then I also won't grieve, for I'm not ambitious. She's writing this to a friend. Mm -hmm. So, again, there's this mystery to my way of thinking. Is this really something that she's actually not very enthusiastic about? Is she ambivalent about it? Does she really want it but feels she can't have it? Or is she, in fact, living the life of her choice uh, Mm -hmm. and publishing as much as she wants to and doesn't want to do more for whatever reason? Uh, these These are fascinating questions to think about. I like this quote. In a separate way than I like that, that first quote of her where she dictates her brother's thinking, but this last line, if the matter comes to an end, then I also won't grieve for I'm not ambitious. I don't believe it at all. I think this is one of those, if we write a letter today, if I write you a letter, Evan, and I put it in the, in the post and send it to your house, that letter has meaning because today I could just send you a text. I could send you an email. I could not contact you at all. But I sit down and I write a letter. Back then, that was, I assume, much more normal. Of course, there were probably certain expectations with it. But I feel like this is if you come over for dinner, Evan, and, and I've made dinner. I put it out. I say, oh, you know, it's okay this time. You know, it's a little salty. Or, you know, it's kind of like something good happens and you're talking to a friend. Oh, if it doesn't work out, you know, it's fine. I'm just happy to be nominated. You're wondering if she's trying to convince herself that yeah. it's okay, that she can't publish a whole lot. Or if it's even just one of those, it's just an honor to be nominated. Yeah. And if I don't win, that's fine. Yeah. But it's one of those things we just don't have all the information of. And through time, of course, 
families and historians, people leave things out sometimes for convenience yes. sakes. Um, that leaves us without a full picture. Her son wrote a book about the family yeah. uh, many years later. And uh, a lot of what we know about her is from that particular testimony. And, uh, you know, it's her son. So uh, <laughs> obviously, uh, you know, we can imagine there's an agenda there to, uh, you know, make the family look good. I think he loved his family, so that probably wasn't difficult for him. But that's uh, not exactly an objective perspective either. So it's, it's interesting to think about that. It's interesting to think about um, the ways in which we can't really know anyone's inner thoughts. I only know that I wish she had published more. But, yeah. uh, you know, if that's not what she wanted to do, who am I to say? Right. But what we do have of hers, whether she published it in her lifetime or it was discovered later on, I'm just left hungry for more when I hear her music. This is a really superb composer. Hungry for more. That's the best way to put it. Because sadly, a year after this first publication, she dies after a stroke while actually helping rehearse one of Felix's um, cantatas. That's when she has this stroke. It's tremendously sad this happened after that, um, just a year later. This is something that plagued the whole family. That's how her parents died the decade before. Yes. Felix died months later the exact same way. Her grandfather died the same way. Yes. That's tragic. Some, some congenital situation that mm -hmm. uh, cut their lives too short. So we know her music was neglected for the next 100 years. And it's also it's still neglected today, of course, this, this, um, this music. We see the influence of her music and her writings, of course, in Felix's music as he sought and followed her advice and guidance all the way to the end, basically, um, until he died a few months after, after her death. So we do see her influence that way and through her own works um, that we still have today. But it's one of those things where we wish we had more. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I was saying, you know, it's a selfish thing on my own part that I, I do wish she had published uh, and composed more music and in a wider variety of genres. But uh, what we do have from her is really extraordinary. We were talking about the Piano Trio, Opus 11, the Easter Sonata. Uh, I'm very grateful to the musicologist Angela Mace Christian, who figured out that Fanny was the composer. Mm. Uh, the Easter Sonata is a phenomenally spiritually profound piece, a very sophisticated work for the piano. Uh, I was saying earlier, a lot of her work is what we would call absolute music, Not doesn't have a program. The Easter Sonata does, and uh, I think, you know, obviously a Christian theme, and yet, like so much great music, it explores those things in a universal way. And I think one of Fanny Mendelssohn's gifts to the world is she's able to create this uh, powerful voice of uh, real uh, musical uh, sophistication, really, really intricate compositions, which are still very accessible, very appealing. She had an extraordinary sense of the beautiful and uh, how to write a compelling musical line and to combine voices of instruments and the human voice in ways that, uh, even though she lived in the early 19th century, are still very resonant with us today. And I would urge everyone, uh, if you're not familiar with this composer, Listen to her music. It's a very rewarding journey to explore her, her genius. And you can do that on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. I'm going to put videos up of uh, some of this music and more resources for Fanny Mendelssohn. Well, thank you so much, Evan, for joining me to talk all about the life and music of Fanny Mendelssohn. Thank you, John. It's a wonderful opportunity to explore this great composer's legacy. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. 
If you have any comments or episode ideas, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoy this episode, leave a review in your podcast app and tell a friend. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. Classical.